0: Thank you for that very warm welcome. And I wonder in beginning whether I should say, normally with any form of public address system, you have to say, Can you hear me? I suppose coming from England, I should say, Can you understand me? (laughs) Joking apart, I'm absolutely delighted to have this opportunity to give an account of the work of the International Commission on English in the liturgy as we move now very close to the implementation of the new English translation of the third typical edition of the Missale Romanum, the Latin text of the Roman Missal, which was issued by the Holy See in 2002 and amended in 2008. As you will know, or maybe not know at all, ISIL is a commission of 11 bishops, representing the 11 largest territories where English is spoken. And since 1963, ISIL has produced liturgical texts in English, translating the Missal, the Liturgy of the Hours, and all of the sacramental rites. Its work is coordinated by a secretariat, which has been based in Washington DC since its inception. In considering ISIL's work with you this evening, I'd like briefly to set my account in the broader context of the evolution of the English translation of the Missal and the use of vernacular languages in Catholic liturgy. Any discussion of Catholic liturgy in English is inevitably linked to the Second Vatican Council. In the first decree to issue from the council, the fathers wrote, in order that the Christian people may more certainly derive an abundance of graces from the sacred liturgy, Holy Mother Church desires to undertake with great care a general restoration of the liturgy itself. The statement of this intention essentially implied two distinct processes which would consequently result in a liturgical revolution for Catholics of the Roman Rite. A radical revision of the liturgical books, which were not merely redactions of their predecessors, but included ancient liturgical texts together with texts of more recent composition, and subsequently the translation of these texts into vernacular languages. I think it's vitally important to consider these two issues together, as from the time of the Council, they are virtually inseparable in the experience of the majority of Catholics. More than 40 years later, If asked what liturgical changes resulted from the Second Vatican Council, many Catholics would simply state that in the celebration of mass, the priest began to face the people and the mass was said in English rather than Latin. It comes as something of a shock to many people to realize that both of these developments have a much longer history and that neither of them was in fact explicitly mandated by the Second Vatican Council or its decrees although some, perhaps most, would argue that they are implicit in its formulations. The idea of liturgy in vernacular languages is as old as the church herself, just as the parallel notion of a hieratic or sacred language used in worship is considerably more ancient than Christianity. The complex relationship between the use of both Latin and Greek and the little we know of the earliest forms of Catholic liturgy, bears witness to the juxtaposition of these two ideas in the development of that liturgy through the centuries. Toward the ends of the first millennium, the missionary experience of the Church in the East led reformers such as Saint Cyril and Methodius to advocate the use of vernacular languages as a means of deepening comprehension of the celebration of the sacred mysteries. The Council of Trent considered the use of vernacular celebration in its sessions, largely although not exclusively in response to the Protestant Reformation. Its resistance of the notion at that stage led to the clarification and codification of Latin as the sole liturgical language of the Roman Rite. In many places, the use of the vernacular in liturgical song and in devotional prayers, for private and sometimes, public recitation during the liturgy, ensured that the idea of a vernacular element in the liturgy was kept alive in the experience of many Catholics. This was particularly true in Germany, where metrical settings of German texts of the ordinary of the mass were frequently sung from the 17th century onwards. In an increasing number of countries where English was spoken, English hymnody and devotions were also greatly in evidence. Out of this popular culture, there grew a movement for increased use of the vernacular, a movement that gathered momentum in the years immediately preceding the Second Vatican Council. In the fall of 1962, with the Second Vatican Council still in session, several English bishops, English speaking bishops, I should say, met in Rome to discuss the production of vernacular translations that they anticipated would be authorized by the Council. These bishops envisaged forming a committee which would produce uniform translations for all English-speaking countries. Their deliberations led to the formation of the International Committee, later Commission, on English in the Liturgy. The first formal meeting of ISIL took place on the 17th of October, 1963 and included representatives of the English-speaking national conferences of Australia, Canada, England and Wales, India, Ireland, New Zealand, Pakistan, Scotland, South Africa and the United States of America. In 1967, the Philippines would become the 11th member conference. In October 1964, the same bishops drew up a formal mandate Defining the nature and scope of the work of the Commission, which was to involve the translation of Latin liturgical texts and the provision of original text for the liturgy where required, and affirming the role of the conferences in designating their bishop representative on the Commission and, that, and accepting or rejecting the final results of the work. This mandate was promptly approved by these conferences. The bishops designated to represent their respective Conference of Bishops on a specially constituted board. From the beginning, the board had the responsibility for governing ISIL, approving all its projects on behalf of the Conferences of Bishops, and determining when texts were final, definitive, and ready for submission to the conferences for their canonical vote, and the approving of finances and the allocation of funds necessary to carry out the work. Assisting this Bishop's Board was a second body, the Advisory Committee, composed of liturgical experts appointed by the Episcopal Board to oversee and carry out the work. As it was the primary body engaged in the work, the members of the Advisory Committee had very great influence in determining the style of translation and the gradual evolution of that style and the approach to translation over the first 30 years of ISIL's history. The work itself was to be coordinated by a small team based at the ISIL Secretariat in Washington, D.C. During its first few years, ISIL's efforts were primarily devoted to the development of procedures and principles of translation. In 1967, ISIL produced its first official English translation of a liturgical text, the Roman Canon, the first Eucharistic prayer. An account of the history of ISIL by its then Executive Secretary, Dr. John Page, mentions that the provisional ISIL translation of the Roman canon, issued in 1967, was generally applauded, though he acknowledged that there were some critics. It's now widely accepted that much that it is ascribed to the Second Vatican Council was, in fact, the work of the Concilium for the implementation of the Constitution on the sacred liturgy. The Concilium, a curial committee charged with the task of implementing the provisions of Sacrosanctum and concilium by making concrete proposals. The Concilium rapidly identified the use of the vernacular as a key to increased participation on the part of the laity. Hence, the emphasis on vernacular translation and the speed with which English translations were prepared. The Concilium eventually outlined its guidelines for the translation of liturgical texts in its instruction, Comme le Prevoir, of 1969. In setting out the process, this instruction states that it is the duty of episcopal conferences to decide which texts are to be translated to prepare or review the translations, to approve them, and after approval, that is confirmation by the Holy See, to promulgate them. In order to facilitate this process, it goes on to suggest that when a common language is spoken in several different countries, international commissions should be appointed by the conferences of bishops who speak the same language to make one text for all. There then follows a careful statement of the parameters of the process whereby the translations are produced, evaluated, and approved. This includes a summary of the principles which govern the actual work of translation. And I quote, the purpose of liturgical translations is to proclaim the message of salvation to believers and to express the prayer of the church. Liturgical translations have become the voice of the church Pope Paul VI said in an address to the participa- participants in the Congress on Translations of Liturgical Texts in November of 1965. To achieve this end, it is not sufficient that a liturgical translation merely reproduce the expressions and the ideas of the original text. Rather, it must faithfully communicate to a given people and in their own language that which the Church, by means of this given text, originally intended to communicate to another people in another time. A faithful translation, therefore, cannot be judged on the basis of individual words. The total context of this specific act of communication must be kept in mind. That's the end of the quotation from Comme le Prévois. The instruction goes on to underline the necessity of taking very great care in the translation of Latin idioms and terms that are difficult to render in vernacular languages or present obstacles in a contemporary context which was not foreseen in the original text. The central maxim of Comme le prévoir expresses it in this way. The accuracy and value of a translation can only be assessed in terms of the purpose of communication. I'd like you to hold that idea in your mind, the idea that the primary goal of a text, as it's seen at this stage, is communication. From technical details of translation theory, the instruction passes to a rather more logistical consideration, suggesting that those countries which have a common language should employ a mixed commission. That's what ISIL is, mixed in terms of representing a group of conferences. By the time Comme le was published, the process of translation was already underway, often guided by scholars whose opinions became authoritative, such as the Benedictine Father Antoine Dumas, who is a member of the Concilium and who wrote extensively about the semantic content of the vocabulary of the missal. More recent scholarship would suggest some of the definitions that Dumas tended to offer were uh, scholastic rather than patristic in character and his dogmatic views regarding translation would be considered by some to be less authoritative now than the time when he published them. It's reasonable to conclude that the instruction, Comme le Prévoir, became a charter, not only for ISIL's translation, but for the work of producing original texts. And by this, I mean texts which aren't translations from Latin, but only exist in a vernacular language, in language. Uh, particular case in English. These original texts um, were then inserted into the translation of the Latin text as a supplementary element. The 1973 translation of the uh, Roman Missal, soon to be outmoded, contains a number of original compositions which are described as alternative opening prayers. Comle Prevoir was issued after the Concilium had already considered the recommendations of a special study group on, on translation. According to Monsignor Frederick McManus, a founding member of ISIL, Comla Prevoir greatly benefited from the experience of ISIL, whose future executive secretary served on a study group of the Concilium for this purpose. The formation of this study group, according to Archbishop Annibale Bunini, the secretary of the Concilium, and later the secretary for the Congregation for Divine Worship, was proposed at a meeting of the Presidential Council of the Concilium in April of 1967. He referred to the purpose of the new study group as the translation of liturgical texts into the vernaculars. According to Archbishop Bunini, the instruction was reviewed and corrected by Pope Paul VI himself from an Italian version of the text. In a letter to Pope Paul VI, along with the document, Bugnini writes, it was said that the norms were not binding in the same degree as a liturgical book. They were rather a working tool that brought together in a systematic form the general and particular regulations issued by the concilium during the previous five years. The text of this instruction was published in the Journal of the Congregation for Divine Worship, Notitiae, but it never appeared in the official Acta Apostolici Serdis, the official record of the the Holy See. ISIL was asked by the Concilium to prepare an English text of Comme Prevoir from the original, French with some additions in Italian, which would then be sent to the Conferences of Bishops. At the time of the promulgation of the 1973 Missal, it was envisaged that a revision of the translation would be necessary and desirable, probably within short order, maybe five or 10 years. In order to facilitate the implementation of liturgical renewal desired by the Council Fathers, the Holy See published five documents of special importance, each successively numbered, as an instruction for the right application of the constitution on the sacred liturgy. The first of these, Inter Ecumenici, was issued in September of 1964 and includes the general principles uh, for the orderly carrying out of liturgical renewal. Three years later, Tres Apic Annos, the second instruction was promulgated, which describes the adaptations to the order of mass. The third instruction basically was to do with the reordering of the Congregation of Rites to become the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments. And so it goes on, these successive uh, instructions, which generally are concerned with the application of the principles of the Council to the particular situation of the liturgy. In February 1997, Pope John Paul II asked the Congregation for Divine Worship to carry forward the process of liturgical renewal by codifying the conclusions of its work in collaboration with the bishops over the years regarding the question of liturgical translations. ISIL had done much, particularly during the 80s and 90s, in order to establish what would be expected in a revision of the Missal, at least in a revision of the English translation. Several ideas emerged at this stage. It was felt that the liturgical language should generally be more formal, reflecting to a greater degree the richness of the original texts. And it was also widely held that mistakes in the current translation should be corrected. One of the things that I've learned, really, I suppose, over the last two years in travelling around the English-speaking world is that, obviously, English is a a world language and is used very widely beyond situations where it's used as a daily spoken language. And the differences in our usage of English can be very pronounced. I've had to learn different vocabulary in coming to to live in this country. And I've had to uh, learn to distrust my initial reactions when I, I read something and think I understand what it means. I'll give you a little example. Last year I was coming out of Farragut North, metro station which is near the ISIL office and I see a banner headline on a newspaper. This was the headline Oprah Winfrey tops herself in Australia. I, re- I read this and, and I go into the office and I say to my secretary terrible news about Oprah isn't it? <laughs> and he says what do you mean? I said well I've just read on the um, on the, the headline coming out of the tube station that she's committed suicide in Australia. <laughs> well, I'm the second uh, British director that he's been secretary to, so he's, he's, he's very used to dealing with this situation. He said, what did it actually say? <laughs> I said, it says, Oprah Winfrey tops herself in Australia. He said, that means that she exceeded all expectations. And I said, not where I come from. <laughs> To top yourself in very colloquial English usage means to take your own life. (laughs) Now, the difference that we have in our use of language in an everyday way does not exist to the same level when we move everything up a notch. When we move to a more formal register of the use of English, then we have a language that is common across regional and national boundaries. So when we are using English in a more formal context, the difference between American usages and British usages is negligible. If we're going to have one English text, and the Holy Father was absolutely clear on this at the outset, and that's been a guiding principle throughout this process, then we have to have something on a more elevated level. A draft revision of the Roman Missal was prepared by ISIL and submitted to the congregation in 1997 after a long and scholarly process of preparation. The translation was made in accordance with the provisions of Comme le Prevoir, with a stricter approach to the demands of the fidelity to the meaning of the Latin original text. During this same period, the Holy See was carefully considering a fuller statement of the principles that should govern the production of such translations. This process of reflection resulted in the suspension of the approval of the draft missal text approved by by the bishops' conferences in 1997, while the Holy See clarified the principles of translation. That clarification came in 2001 with liturgium authenticum on the use of vernacular languages in the publication of the books of the Roman liturgy. Which was approved by Pope John Paul II on the 28th of March 2001 and came into force on the 25th of April that same year. The press release issued by the Holy See says it all. This instruction supersedes all norms previously set forth on liturgical translation, with the exception of those in the fourth instruction, Varietatis Legitime and specifies that the two instructions should be read in conjunction with each other. It calls more than once for a new era in the translation of liturgical texts. It should be noted that the new document substitutes for all previous norms while integrating much of their content, drawing them together in a more unified and systematic way, underpinning them with some careful reflection, and linking them to certain related questions that so far have been treated separately. Moreover, it is faced with the task of speaking in a few pages of principles applicable to several hundred languages currently used in liturgical celebration in every part of the world. It does not employ the technical terminology of linguistics or of the human sciences, but refers principally to the domain of pastoral experience." That's the end of the quotation. Much can be said in relation to this instruction and much has already been published by way of commentary and evaluation of the effect of this important document. My own concern here this evening is briefly to assess the significance of the instruction for ISIL and for the task with which it's entrusted. The most far-reaching consequence of that is that the instruction embodies an entirely different approach to translation. In order to illustrate this, we have to understand several important aspects of translation theory which are pertinent in this regard. I'll try and, try and do this quickly and as lightly as I can manage because it's, it's, it's rather heavy. The two different approaches are characterized by the terms dynamic equivalence and formal equivalence. Dynamic equivalence, also known as functional equivalence, attempts to convey the thought Um, of the original text, often at the expense of literalness or original word order and the source's original grammatical voice or style, we might say, while formal equivalence attempts to render the text word for word, if necessary, sometimes at the expense of what might be considered a more natural expression uh, in linguistic terms. In reality, of course, there's no sharp boundary between these two approaches, and texts will have aspects of both approach. They're only characterized by whichever approach dominates. The term dynamic equivalence and formal equivalence were associated with the translator Eugene Nider, who was born uh, in 1911 and only died very recently, and they were determined by him to describe different approaches to the translation of the scriptures but they can be applied obviously to the translation of any text dynamic equivalence doesn't really require strict adherence to the grammatical structure of the original because it favors a more natural rendering in the target language for that reason it's most suited to texts where the readability of the translation is more important than the preservation of the original grammatical structure. So you won't be surprised when I say that novels are are most frequently translated in this way, with greater use of dynamic equivalence, because you have to produce something that means something to the readers in the new language. While in more formal contexts, such as uh, diplomacy or some business setting, certainly legal uh, documentation, there will be more reliance on formal equivalence. The more the source language differs from the target language, the more the challenges in the production of a literal translation. On the other hand, formal equivalence can often allow readers or hearers to see how meaning was expressed in the original, preserving its idioms, rhetorical devices, and certain modes of speech. In case it is not already obvious, comme le prévoir engenders the approach described as dynamic equivalence and liturgia m'authenticam favours formal equivalence. I want to give you an example of the difference. You haven't got this text in front of you, you're just going to have to listen to it and you're going to hear it in three versions. The first version is the latin original now this is this is a beautiful prayer and it's a prayer which is found in the veronese sacramentary which is a seventh century manuscript which is a collection a large collection of uh, prayers for the mass it's not a complete missal, but it has a large number of the cycles of the liturgical year it's a prayer which Uh, also finds inspiration in a beautiful sermon of St. Leo the Great, and it also inspires a prayer which we hear sometimes at Mass if the priest says it aloud, but the prayer that's used when the the chalice is mixed, when the little drop of water is added to the chalice. Deus qui humani substantiae dignitatem et mirabilita condidisti et mirabilius reformasti nobis Eus Esse Consortes, humanitatis nostre dignatus es particeps. Now, the way you're going to hear it, because it's the collect of the Mass of Christmas Day, the way you will hear it on Christmas Day this year is as follows. O God who wonderfully created the dignity of human nature and still more wonderfully restored it, grant, we pray, that we may partake in the divinity of him who humbled himself to share in our humanity. That's how you will hear it. This is how you've heard it up until now. Lord God, we praise you for creating man and still more for restoring him in Christ. Your son shared our weakness. May we share his glory. Now, I would suggest that if you were to characterise those two different approaches, and the ideas appear in both, but the current translation, the one we've been using up to now, is a bit flat. The ideas are there, but they've sort of been squashed. And in the the new translation, they are re-inflated. They they have something of the natural balance that is evident in the Latin. The phrases balance each other perfectly and the ideas are, are well presented. And you get a greater sense, actually, of what the prayer is about. The fact that our Lord in the incarnation took on our humanity precisely so that we could in the the process that the Fathers call divinization, become holy. I would suggest to you that that's more evident in the translation that we're about to take on this Christmas day. On a practical level, the consequences of Liturgium Authenticum for ISIL have been profound. Not only was it necessary to abandon an approach to translation that had characterized early editions of the Missal, It was also necessary to take on a new management structure, expressive of a new relationship with Episcopal Conferences and indeed with the Holy See itself. This resulted in new statutes for ICEL, which was formally recognised by the Holy See as a a mixed commission. These changes were immediately followed by the publication of the third typical edition of the Missalia Romanum on the 2nd of May 2002 the new Latin edition of the Missal, which would be used for the first uh, ISIL translation to be made in accordance with the new directives. For a complex variety of reasons, it was not felt possible that a revision of the 1997 translation would be possible, so an entirely new work was begun. It's taken 10 years, but it's a big text, and if you have to go through the consultation process that's necessary at every stage with bishops conferences voting on this text line by line that's a lot of votes so it's it's been a, a long and drawn out process but a necessary one if it's to keep everybody in the loop as it were the new edition of the missile contains a revised and expanded version of the general instruction of on the Roman Missal, increased from 357 to 399 paragraphs. The corpus of text for the prayers over the people has been expanded, allowing for a different text of this prayer to be assigned to each day of Lent. The third edition also provides liturgical texts for the celebration of 22 saints and various other memorials that have been added to the general Roman calendar since 1975. The Missal has introduced new Mass formularies for the Common of the Blessed Virgin Mary, for Masses for various needs and intentions, and for votive Masses. The appendix to the Order of Mass now provides a text for Eucharistic prayers for reconciliation, and the Eucharistic prayers for Masses for various needs and intentions. In addition to the provision of an additional text, the third edition also contains a greatly expanded corpus of chants, and I want to say something about this, This missal has more music in it than any missal the church has ever produced. The music is is Gregorian chant, with which I believe you are familiar. (laughs) In the Latin missal, of course, it's in Latin. And in the missal that we're about to have in English, the same Gregorian tunes are rendered with English words, or sometimes the Latin and the English side by side, which is a powerful way of reinforcing the idea that the singing of chant in Latin is perfectly all right at an English celebration of the Mass. The reprint of this Missal in 2008 contained further changes and additions to the liturgical texts, which now include Vigil Masses for the Solemnities of the Epiphany and the Ascension of the Lord, and for the celebration of the Vigil Mass of Pentecost in an extended form which is similar to the Easter Vigil. The principles by which the translation of the Missal has been prepared are enunciated in two texts of the congregation, Liturgia Authentica, I've already mentioned in 2001, and a special Ratio Translationis for the English language, which the congregation issued in 2007. Obviously, it's important that those preparing and reviewing the draft translations have a a necessary knowledge of Latin to ensure that the meaning of the original is faithfully conveyed. Although the formal process of preparing the new translation has taken, as I say, ten years, the remote preparation for those most intimately involved in this work is more in terms of a lifetime of the acquisition of the various skills required to efficiently, sufficiently high level. I say this really to encourage you, because you learn Latin, and I want you to know what an important skill that is for the future. Latin is in many ways the, the, the matrix of so much of our Western civilization, and that nowhere is that more true of anything to do with the church, and particularly the sacred liturgy. The number of men and women who have necessary command of Latin to, be, to engage in this work is pitifully small at the present time. It's dwindled. You are part of the new wave that's going to produce a new generation of scholars who will have not only these skills, but the sensibility of understanding what the liturgy is about because you've been formed in accordance with Catholic theology. It's not sufficient to be a linguist. You have to be a linguist who understands the theology of the liturgy and understands the truest purpose of the liturgy. The process that each, each text goes through in order to establish a, a final version, which is acceptable both to the uh, Episcopal conferences and the Holy See, is complex. Each text is initially translated by a base translator. So, just a, a single person um, who might, might be a priest, a religious, or a lay person, male or female in the case of lay people or religious, who has the necessary skills and theological formation to undertake this work. They are authorized for that work by being granted the nihil obstat, the permission of the Holy See. Very few people have this permission. The present time, only three people in the world have that permission for English. It's a very carefully controlled situation. That translation is then evaluated by a team of reviewers who are four bishops who themselves have those skills and talents. They then present the text to the 11 bishops of the commission who work on the text themselves, at which point it goes to the 11 conferences. The conferences then are uh, able to consult as widely as they want to at that stage. And all of their comments and suggestions come back to a little office in Connecticut Avenue in DC where we have to try and make sense of what 11 conferences and 728 bishops have said in relation to this and apply it to the text. Then it goes back to them again, and at that stage they vote on it. And if they have more than a two-thirds majority, they can approve the text and submit it to the Holy See Requesting permission to implement it. And all of the 11 conferences were at that stage about 18 months ago. And the Holy See granted the permission just uh, 12 months ago now. And in this last stage, we've been assisting the conferences and the, I think, 13 publishers of the Missal worldwide to prepare their editions for the publication of the text which will be coming to an altar near you on the 27th of November and will be available in your bookshops from the beginning of next month. The more complex a process becomes, the more unwieldy it is in terms of its administration, of course, and the longer it takes. It would be entirely impractical and inappropriate to administer a process of consultation beyond that which I've outlined. In such a case, the chances of achieving a translation of quality would be seriously diminished, if not entirely removed. Some have suggested that the bishops have been passive victims in this process rather than protagonists. I would suggest that this perpetuates the myth that the translation is the work of the few who in complete abstraction from the life of the church have produced a text which they now seek to foist on everyone else. Some people would give you that impression. That's a sort of urban myth that I meet from time to time. Let me assure you, here and now, that bishops are involved in every stage of the production of this text. And great care has been taken in the preparation of something which is so precious to us. When you think about what we do when we celebrate the Mass... I don't think there's any time when we feel ourselves to be more truly members of the church than when we are celebrating the Holy Eucharist. That's how important it is to us. A frequent observation heard in relation to the new translation is that the language is more formal, and I've explained that to you already. This was the intention for some of the reasons that I've given you, not only to reflect the quality and the characteristics of the original Latin text, but importantly for us as well, and this is a wonderful characteristic of the new translation, to to show much more clearly our dependence upon the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scriptures are the, the largest single source of our liturgical texts. Most of the liturgy is scriptural. And for us to have a sense of the resonance of those scriptural elements of the Mass, far greater attention has been given by consulting the versions of the scriptures that we use in the celebration of the Mass so that those are evident in the translation that you're going to receive. Obviously, there's a big task involved in this, in making the Missal. There's a very big task now involved in receiving and implementing this Missal. And it's very much a task which lies in your hands. And this is a very characteristic difference, I think, from the situation that was faced uh, 40 years ago in the changes that immediately followed the Second Vatican Council. I think at that stage, the clergy were almost the exclusive portal for information to their people. That is not so now. You are young, well informed Catholics who have a very great sense of what is happening at the present time in the Church. And we have an opportunity for renewed liturgical culture, greater reverence and respect in the celebration of the liturgy. And this will be greatly assisted by the reception of this translation because of its character and because of its fidelity to the original text that it translates. I drew your attention initially to a characteristic that's highlighted in Comme le prévoir, the initial uh, norms for translation, speaking about the importance of communication. I would suggest to you that our liturgical language not only has the purpose of communicating the content of our belief, but it also needs to express that belief by giving voice to the mind of the church. In celebrating a particular mystery and also to give a voice to the heart of those who are engaging in the liturgical celebration there has to be a process of catechesis that's already underway I hope it's not going to stop on the 27th of November we have to spend a lifetime in immersing ourselves in these texts which are so rich and which our tradition is handing to us now for our generation, for the sanctification of people and for drawing many who do not know Christ or the church into the way of the church and the way of salvation. I hope that perhaps in briefly describing to you how the missile has been made and the complex interrelation of various elements of this process, you can come to understand that what I'm describing is very much a work of the church, not the work of one person or even a small group of people, or a small group of of experts, but in a really true sense, a work of the church. Among those who have been most intimately concerned with this process are men and women distinguished not only by their scholarship and their understanding of the liturgy, but also by their experience as pastors catechists, parish musicians, and all who are concerned with our liturgy. The whole purpose of the production of the English edition of the Missal, and the guiding purpose in all of ICEL's activity, is that we should have a dignified celebration of the sacred liturgy, in which due attention has been given to each of its constitutive elements, in such a way that all our people will come to a greater knowledge and experience of the saving mysteries which we celebrate. In that respect, the goal of ISIL and Christendom College is essentially one and the same. Thank you very much.